from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here in Oakland, California. On this week's edition, carbon removal attracts some big bucks. Agroforestry begins to take root in the United States. How a new EU directive will rewrite ESG reporting. And King Charles, climate, and the coronation. We're romancing the throne this week on 350. It's May 5th, 2023. Feliz Cinco de Mayo. Welcome to another episode of Green Biz 350. So glad to have you with us. Joining me from Midland Park, New Jersey, is our own royalty, Green Biz Editorial Director, Heather Clancy. Hi, Heather. <laughs> I'm still thinking about romancing the stone. <laughs> the throne. The, the throne. Oh, my line. God. You threw me way back with that reference. Okay. Um, yeah. <laughs> Sorry. I, I'm, uh, I'm, I'm, not, I'm, I'm, I'm not that young. I am not that young either, but I loved that movie, actually. <laughs> I'm just, it made me think of all the movies that, um, that I used to really uh, admire when I was actually watching movies and yeah. going to the movie theater. Michael Douglas anyway. and, and, uh, and oh. Kathleen Turner, I think, yeah. right? I haven't looked it up, but I think it's my recollection. It's Kathleen Turner and uh, Michael Douglas, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, how are you this week, Joel? I'm good. Just, you know, trying to uh, lean into some a whole list of stories mm-hmm. that I've got that I think I want to look at. And, um, um, <laughs> and I, I'm sure you have a list too. Um, uh, it keeps getting longer. <laughs> I know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I mean, I'm looking at this for Monday. I've got a piece coming up on uh, boards of directors and mm-hmm. sustainability and looking into uh, the decarbonization of advertising, mm-hmm. um, thinking of revisiting that, you know, the, flying dilemma that a lot of uh, sustainability people have or where are we on that <laughs> yeah and uh and 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 is and, about and, five and. or six more yeah. yeah how about you Ooh, well today i have been thinking about plastic eating enzymes second chance hiring and b lab certification yeah what about b lab well, so I've just noticed there's been a flood and uh, flood flurry. I, I don't know which term I'll use, but uh, quite a few uh, certifications. And so I've been actually talking to some of the larger companies like Nespresso that just um, have certified and just salad and why they're doing so and how the certification is evolving. It's um, just a there is a lot happening. They also struck a deal with uh, a partnership with We Mean Business. I don't know if you saw that this week. So there's a lot going no. on um, mm. with the B Corp movement. Um, and I'm just trying to get my arms around it. Yeah. So just talking to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. One of the things that bugs me about the B Lab movement, as you call it, is the conflation between the mm-hmm. B Lab, which is this voluntary mm-hmm. certification that you're yep. talking about for Nespresso and others, and the beneficial corporation yes. status that's in yep. 20 or 25 or 30 states mm-hmm. where a company can can actually put into its, its uh, organizing documents, its bylaws, uh, that uh, stake shareholder primacy is is no no not necessarily the case that the company may choose to uh, 
to uh, you know work in, fa- in, in in to benefit uh, environmental or social things, and that's okay. Um, and uh, that's the, people talk about we're a B Corp, but no, it's a company that's been organized under the principles of whatever the Secretary of State of that state has has set forth on as a B. Anyway. It's 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 two different movements yep. um, that often get confusing. talked about in the same breath. I hope you'll make that clear mm-hmm. in your piece. <laughs> I will. You know, it's interesting. <laughs> I actually spoke with a company this week that um, was is not a is not been certified by B Lab. Let's put it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're using the assessment to help them frame out their programs, which was interesting. So yeah. they, I'm sure. Yeah, I'm sure a number of companies do that. Yeah. And uh, yeah. but we'll look forward to that piece and reading more about what B Lab is and maybe isn't these days. <laughs> Thank but, you. But you know, let's um, instead of talking about the stories we've yet to do, let's talk about the stories we've done in the week in review. So we're going to begin in the South Pole, sort of. Uh, I, uh, sorry, that was just a way it of getting to this one. story uh, <laughs> about South Pole. The, uh, the, the consultancy and uh, Mitsubishi are among those who are, are uh, uh, launched a, a joint venture uh, to really ramp up carbon removal projects and make them available to buyers. And I was I was struck by this one, Heather, by sort of the listing of the of the various kinds of of uh, projects uh, that they're talking about. Um, mm-hmm. It sort of, it, it sort of uh, reminds us how broad this field is. They yeah. talk about biochar, biomass, carbon removal and storage, direct air capture, and something called product mineralization and enhanced rock weathering. Yeah. That's a mouthful. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know just enough about that to be annoying, but uh, I look forward to hearing more about that at some point. What, 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 what uh, is this really, uh, you think a landmark? This is a piece by, by the way, Jesse Klein, our senior editor, who's been uh, our point person on carbon removal editorially at Green Biz. Mm-hmm. Uh, what was your takeaway from this in terms of its significance? So this is another, what they're calling advanced, advanced buying commitment or advanced buying uh, consortium, et cetera, um, depending on the words you use. It's like Frontier, which is a, a similar group um, that was put together by Stripe, Alphabet, Shopify, Meta, and McKinsey. Um, w- what I like about these particular initiatives is that they're basically saying to potential investors in these companies, like so, you know, there's a number of companies named, smaller companies named here in the in the story, that hey, you know what? If we can get this thing off the ground, if we can help, you know, if you banks or others can lend these people money to build these things, we'll buy, we'll buy the, the actual, we'll, we'll make purchases. Well, essentially buying the credits as we've discussed before, they're buying, um, removal credits instead of avoidance credits more or less. So I do think that these kinds of ventures, uh, initiatives, if you will, are important for signaling to the market that people want to buy these things. Um, and right now, I think they might be particularly important because, you know, of the climate tech funding climate has um, kind of cooled off, if you will. I mean, I think that's saying, putting it um, politely, it's really taken a hit um, based on these 
um, you know, even before the um, the banking crisis, if you will, at the regional level, kind of hit us. Um, the 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 money was not drying up, but but slowing. The, the well, I mean, one of the things that happened, I think, this is significant because one of the players in this consortium is South Pole. Yeah. Um, back in January, there was this uh, sort of uh, tough investigation into some of the credits that they were selling, and they found out that some of these credits were grossly overestimated. And um, and, and so I'm wondering, uh, you know, they, they claim, of course, that the credits were legitimate and, and doing what they said they would be doing from a carbon removal perspective. But I think there's a, a lack of trust that's taking place here. And, and to that point, and I'm wondering what your, your thinking is on this, a lot of these companies who they're you know, they're selling these to, I think, are investing in something that really is still unproven or still has yet to you know really ramp up in the way that it needs to, and uh, you know they're 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 really placing a bet here on mm-hmm. something that uh, is is risky, I guess, um, particularly if they're aiming to you know to achieve some net zero commitment, which of course most companies are. Yeah. Do you, how big a risk do you think this is? Well, I absolutely totally agree with you that it is a big, a big risk um, because we don't know. Um, and some of these things will not make it right. Some of these projects will, will not come. I mean, and a lot of the contracts, at least that I've looked at are, they have very specific time bound things in them. Um, you know, like Shopify, it was looking at some of theirs the other day. Um, and you know, they have, they're, they're short term, they're looking at short term stuff and then longer term stuff. For me, like the, the thing that that's a big question mark, another big question mark, if you will, is that I, I don't know who's verifying these credits, right? Like we don't know, we, I don't think there's a really clear or comprehensive system yet for actually authenticating these removals. And that, so there's there still needs to be a lot of work done there. So this is a very yeah very nascent market. I mean, but still, so was power purchase agreements for renewables. I mean, these and people were hedging their bets that um, there would be a price on carbon. You know, in that case, that 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 the the energy costs were going up. You know, there was they needed to invest in solar and and wind, and they could make you know these contracts and kind of get themselves you know some credits for that and. You know, I, it, come, it very much reminds me of of that that movement, the corporate renewable movement, like about I don't know five or six years ago, where um, the the sort of evangelists and early adopters are really trying to catalyze the market, and I guess they have they can take some risk. I don't know how you know I don't know how they're actually deciding how much to put into these things. Um, you know, you notice it's not just one company; it's it's groups of companies. Um, so I don't know. It, it's, it's, it's important though. I think in order for any more money to go into these things, we have to, you have to prove that someone wants to buy. Yeah. Yeah. You can you got to try and, and hopefully that the risks are, are minimal. <laughs> there, there, no, there will be, uh, there will be speed bumps in all mm-hmm. of these journeys and, mm-hmm. uh, and hopefully we've, we saw those and we're, we're now back on a, on a smooth pavement, but let's uh, move over to sort of a related, uh, topic and at least in the sense of nature-based solutions, um, this comes from Seth Olson, one of the newest members of the Green Biz team. He's part of the the food team led by Teresa Lieb um, and uh, wrote his first piece for, for Green Biz on agroforestry, which um, is, you know, basically intentionally integrating 
trees and I guess shrubs and, and into crops and, and animal farming systems in a way that that align uh, both environmental and social benefits and I assume economic ones. Biodiversity too. Biodiversity, yeah. It's 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 been around for centuries, but not such a big thing in these United States. And I think that uh, what he's writing about here is a, is a startup, uh, one of the few startups in the U.S. working to combine agriculture and forestry. It's called Propagate, great name, um, and uh, talking about uh, sort of making a run at this and, and how this can be very much part of uh, the toolkit of, of climate solutions, uh, certainly according to Project Drawdown. Yeah. I want to, what I want to point out about this company is I actually, Joel, I wrote about these guys three years ago. So I'm oh. really excited to hear about the progress they're making. Um, they've definitely have figured some things out. Like for example, I think one of the most important thing that they're doing is having financing for, um, for the, the farms, right? So like, how do you convince a farmer to go out and put a stand of hazelnut or, or you know, trees in, if it's going to take 10 years for them to get nuts for, you know, actual product from, yeah. from those trees. So they, they've got this fund that they've worked out um, and, and oh, lo and behold, Cargill's involved um, to help them. And by the way, I love the, the, um, the other advisor, Walnut level capital. <laughs> um, it's a great name, but yeah. you know, but I, I, um, when I spoke with them, they were also talking about other things. This is just, it doesn't have to be just crop farmers. It could be things like, um, they could have chickens, for example. One of the farms farms that I talked to that was investing or getting involved with this had chickens that they were allowing to gr- roam in the, in the trees. And, um, you know, so, th- and it was just a, a better way of integrating their land. And so I lo- I do love this model. And I think it's, it also gets us away from the, the whole monoculture, um, mindset that has really been one of the reasons that we we have so much so many issues now with with agriculture and how and the changes we need to make so yeah i love it i love this company one one of the things that struck me about this is is the use as it is so much in so many different aspects of sustainability of software and data Mm-hmm. Um, and talks about a company called Overyield, which is a great name. <laughs> it's a software product that helps farmers understand key variables such as costs, revenues, yield projections, and labor needs uh, to make informed decisions. And 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 how uh, that's being used now to uh, to provide a, a clear view of the economic, environmental, and social benefits that nature provides farmers. Um, and it brings together what he calls multidimensional data sets. Not sure what those are, but it sounds sounds techy and complicated. Um, <laughs> it, it enables us to work against uh, to work with nature instead of against it, as he wrote. Um, so yeah, this is uh, uh, again an uh, an old concept, just like circular economy is a very old concept. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we used to do that naturally uh, uh, pri- prior to the you know basically the pre-World War II, before plastics uh, really started to take over. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, what's 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 old is is new again. But what's also new, uh, moving over to our third story from Matt Orsaw, uh, one of our regular go-to writers. He's chief content officer at ED4S Academy, which is a sustainability training platform, is the four letters that so many companies are going to need to learn 
CSRD, the Corporate Sustainability Reporting Directive that's uh, taking hold in in the European Union, but it's affecting companies around the world, pretty much anybody who does business in the EU, uh, about 11,000 EU companies, but um, uh, it's going to require 50,000 companies to enhance their reporting on sustainability. Wow. Um, you know, we we look at the what may be coming out of the U.S. Uh, US Securities and Exchange Commission a proposed uh, climate disclosure laws, and we a lot of fretting about that, and and a, and a whole bunch of other carbon disclosure initiatives and potential requirements. But here's something that's out and now in force or will be in force. Actually, it it, it really starts in next year, in 2024. Um, 50,000 companies, did I mention that, uh, are going to have to change how they report. So this is a big deal. Yeah. It's uh, companies with more than 250 employees, net turnover of $44 million. That's not a very high number. Balance sheet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, these. so that's the other thing that's really struck me is these are, these are also small companies, right? So um, although they have a little bit longer, I think it's January 20. 2026 that they have until to, to do this. But, um, you know, it just, the irony of this just strikes me is like, we have here in the United States, these States, you know, saying, Whoa, anti-ESG, we can't have people. If they want, I mean, companies that want to do business in other countries are going to, in Europe are going to have to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, they, they don't have a choice. And so like, you know, I'm sorry, governor of Florida, but you're, company has to do this. I, I I don't know. I just really don't. It just, again, it's mind boggling the, the sort of, um, posturing around this, but I mean, in all seriousness, I guess you better bone up on Europe's directive yeah. because that's going to hit. Um, I think, you know, everyone who's fretting over the sec should get their people learning more about this. Um, and I think, one of the, I, I guess, uh, Joel, and you probably know more about this than I do. I know that we were expecting um, some updates on the the SEC, but we didn't get them in April. And I believe that what one of the things I read was that they're trying to get better aligned with this. Actually, that well, that's one of the things that might be holding it up, so that there is less gear grinding. That maybe the things are more aligned. I don't know. That was one of the things I heard. I, that's just hearsay, of course, but. Maybe you have a better read on that. No, I've heard that too, and and from the, the as best I can tell, the uh, the final proposal uh, will be coming in May, June, July, August, September, October, November, or December. <laughs> <laughs> we don't really know, uh, but I want to go back to something you said, uh, Heather, because uh, on the small business side, just to clarify that the companies outside of Europe uh, that do business in the EU in the EU will be covered if. They generate a total revenue of $167 million in the EU mm. and have at least one branch or subsidiary in, in, in the EU. Um, and so with, with one branch or subsidiary in the EU with more than $44.5 million in net revenue. Got it. Um, so that, that those aren't so small businesses, although uh, I think by some definitions, they would certainly be in the midsize category. Yep. So, so still so, pretty small, yeah. still smaller than yeah. most people probably realize. Yeah. So a lot more reporting that we'll be doing on corporate reporting.
Circular economy continues to be a topic we're looking at at GreenBiz. And of course, we have our annual Circularity Conference coming up June 5th to 7th in Seattle. Uh, here to talk about both the state of the art and the event is John Schmea, our Circular Economy Lead at the GreenBiz. Hey, John. Hey, Joel. How's it going? It's going great. So let's talk about the circular economy for a second. It seems to be one of these things that's under the radar, sort of continues to gurgle along, if you will. What? How would you describe the state of the art right now? And, and how much changes from year to year? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. I think, you know, last year when we were we were down in Atlanta, we had about 900 people uh, in attendance. And you know, we were still sort of growing a little bit out of this plastics and packaging and recycling discussion, right? That's that's sort of where the circular economy conversation started, I think, 10, 15 years ago, whenever people originally started talking about this. And I think just in this last year, um, we've seen a lot of growth and a lot more urgency uh, driven by a, a few different a few different things, but definitely more urgency in in tech and what we're going to do with all this consumer electronics, electric vehicles, the the renewable energy infrastructure that's starting to get taken out. We've we've seen a lot more urgency in that in that sort of tech and renewable energy space, and we've seen a ton more urgency in apparel and textiles. And I think you know that's largely driven by this increasing awareness of consumers. Um, and NGOs about the sort of the the huge piles of textile waste, the mountains of textile waste that are starting to accumulate all over the world because we just have no no good end of life solution right now. So I think largely what we've seen over this last year is is both growth. Um, we're expecting a lot more people this year at our conference, um, but also just sort of an increased urgency and and a lot of hard work companies are putting into to testing out some of these circular economy uh, methods that they think are, are long-term solutions for them. It's interesting about tech. Uh, I mean, e-waste has been an issue for decades. What's going on now that's driving sort of an upsurge of interest or action on these topics? Yeah, you know, I think part of it is, um, it seems to me to be two or even threefold, right? One is with the, you know, every every product we buy now seems to have a bunch of different chips in it, right? So chips are a big deal. There was obviously a shortage at, at one point during the during the COVID pandemic, and the the U.S. government's putting a lot of emphasis on it. So I think chips are part of it, and just the the huge increase in in need for those. Um, batteries are obviously using a lot of lithium right now, and lithium is you know not only becoming more expensive, but also it comes from areas that we generally don't like to source from um, uh, due to due to some social and and human rights concerns. So working on that, um, and then I think you know in addition to that, as as the the big driver in sustainability is still carbon, still climate change. Um, there's just so much more need for precious metals uh, to support that that the the costs are just starting to come up for all the consumer electronics. And so I so I think it's it's just this confluence of intersecting issues related to growth in the in the area that that is starting to drive up prices and and make people more aware of the the environmental and cost implications. Paul Hawken a number of years ago said to me that the B two B circular economy will be bigger than the B two C circular economy. Are you seeing any evidence of that? Uh, you know, I, not really. I mean, they're, they're both, it, it's, it's sort of hard to say cause they're both such, you know, such nascent, uh, 
areas, I think, for most companies, most large companies. Um, a lot of what we're seeing in the sort of innovator startup space is is actually really largely focused on the consumer, uh, the consumer facing goods, whether it's reusable packaging um, or or recycled, upcycled materials for for apparel. Um, so we're we're starting to see a lot of that in the business and consumer space. I think what what the the challenge for the business to business sector so far has been. Um, a lot of companies are doing a lot of good work on designing their products for circularity, um, but then a lot of them are dropping the ball on how to actually get those products back and keep them in circulation. Uh, we see it in the building sector a lot. Um, we, you know, we even see it in auto, right? Like cars always get returned and recycled, but there's a lot of downcycling happen there. So I think there's there's definitely areas for improvement in both. Uh, business to business, it's really about keeping track of that stuff, getting it back and keeping it at its highest and best use. And then business to consumer, it feels like it's a lot of, you know, sort of convincing consumers uh, to change behaviors and things like that. So they're different problem sets, um, but they both seem to be accelerating pretty fast right now. You're a chemist by training and 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 I'm wondering about sort of the flow of of chemicals. We talk we can think about the metals and the and the plastics and all the other hard materials, but if it, it attacks to all this is a is a just a witch's brew of of lots and lots and lots of different kinds of chemicals. Are they f- finding ways to keep those in flow? You know, it's uh, despite being trained in chemistry, we don't have a lot of these conversations in our community right now. And I think I think it's a miss. Uh, you know, we definitely engage with the big chemical companies and they've had processes in place for a really long time to distill and repurify process chemicals and get them back and reuse them. Um, but I think there's still a big gap there for a lot of the chemicals that we use in, in industry. Uh, and then, you know, on the flip side of that, there's also a big need um, to just improve the sustainability of, of chemical manufacturing in general, right? Whether it's toxicity profiles, energy use, uh, water use, where the chemicals are coming from in the first place, you know, a lot of them still come from oil and gas. So I think there's still a lot of opportunity for the chemical industry to um, to become more circular because the the technologies are often there. Um, having worked in a chemistry lab long enough, I knew I know we could keep stuff if we put the time and effort into into repurifying it. Um, it's just that's not always economically viable. So I think these companies have to have to really dig in uh, and figure out new tech for that and, and improve the tech they have. Lots more work to do. Well, let's talk about the event uh, coming up in just a little over four weeks. What are you excited about? What's uh, uh, sort of top of mind for you? Uh, I'm really excited about how much the 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 universe of people that are interested in this topic is broadening. I mentioned earlier, you know, it was it was very heavy on plastics and packaging early on. Um, we're starting to see a lot more interest, uh, both for, both in attending and speaking at the conference from every sector of the economy. One great example of this is last year for our conference, we had about 260 speaker nominations come in that we had to weed through for our spots. And, you know, a lot of them were were pretty, uh, you know, pretty light, actually. They weren't they weren't the topics that we really wanted to discuss this year. We got over 500 and it was really hard to narrow them down. So we're seeing just a ton more interest from a lot more sectors and a lot more good work going on uh, where people really have um, initiatives they wanna talk about. So that's really exciting for the, for the conference itself. Also, I'm, I'm really excited about some of the speakers we have and some of the organizations we, we're bringing in. 
Um, we're going to be coming off the the second uh, global plastics treaty conversation that's going to happen in Paris the week before. So we'll have a couple really in-depth discussions about what's going on in that plastics treaty conversation. That'll be great for the audience. Um, we're going to have on our keynote stage, we're going to have some conversations about the sort of upstream impacts of manufacturing some of the things we use in our linear economy, as well as the downstream impacts of you know where they end up and how that affects people and communities and the environment. That'll be really great. Um, and one thing I'm particularly excited about is we're going to have a conversation on our keynote stage with four folks uh, from Gen Z that are just now entering the workforce uh, and just get their take on on you know interacting with the older generations what they hope to bring to this conversation and how they can sort of uh, move it along faster. So a lot of really interesting stuff, a lot of really exciting uh, speakers and content we've got. Um, and we're gonna be in Seattle, which is uh, a, sort of a hub for all things circular economy and reuse. And we're excited to bring bring that story forward too. And uh, Governor, soon to be outgoing Governor Jay Inslee, state of Washington will be on the main stage as well. Lots going on there. Well. Uh, we'll pin a, uh, a link to the conference on the uh, episode page for the, this week's uh, podcast. John Schmay is Vice President of Circularity at GreenBiz and leads all things circular, including the upcoming Circularity Conference, June 5th to 7th in Seattle. Thanks so much, John. Thank you, Joel. You may have read there's a little celebration taking place over in the UK this weekend. The coronation of King Charles III seemed as good a time as any to check in with our friend James Murray, editor-in-chief at Business Green over in London. Hey, James. Hi, Joe. So is uh, London all a Twitter over the weekend's activities? Um, I think so, to a degree. As always, we're always we're always a bit jaded as Brits. We're always a little bit divided on these things. But no, there's going to be a, there'll be a bank holiday weekend. There will be... A uh, huge ceremony uh, tomorrow, and uh, yeah, we will have the official coronation of of the new king. And of course, you know, Queen Elizabeth lived for so long that the vast, vast, vast majority of Brits it will be the first one of these we've ever seen. So, um, yeah, a, a, a significant moment. Well, the first one in seventy years. So, King Charles has a long history of of environmental action, activism, philanthropy, um, and I actually wrote uh, when uh, when. Uh, Her Majesty passed back in September, uh, and sort of a, a little note of hopefulness that that maybe Charles would, uh, you know, continue his climate advocacy in particular when he ascended. Um, what can what can you tell us about how that's gone so far, and what you anticipate going forward? Um, I think I think he has continued it to a degree. Now he's obviously he's had to step back, and he was very mindful. I think when when he sort of first spoke. Um, after his after his mother's death, about you know the sense of it, you know the, the as a king he can't have too um, political a role, and obviously a lot of these issues around climate, rightly or wrongly, are deemed to be quite political. So he has stepped back from being a trustee of a lot of the um, organisations from the environmental perspective that he was involved with, um, but equally, you know, no one can sort of zap his memory with a sort of men in black style thing and make him forget all this and he can't make the public forget it either everyone's very very aware that you know probably the issue that he cares most about in public life is is nature um is climate and and is the sort of responsibility we have 
to future generations. So um, I think some of his public pronouncements have kind of hinted at that, not in, not in, in quite as um, overt a way as was previously the case. Um, but all the organisations that he previously worked with are still very much, you know, it's clear that he was involved for a long period. I think other members of the royal family are going to pick up a lot of those trusteeships and that involvement will continue. Um, and then there's been a bit of a nice touch just announced this week that uh, there's going to be some new nature reserves um, made in his honour. Uh, there's going to be a series of coronation woods planted as part of the UK's tree planting programme, which is kind of going on anyway, but they're going to give them this this branding to try and engage people more with nature. Um, and I would be very surprised if his time on the throne isn't sort of characterised by this steady drumbeat of of environmental concern and environmental issues. Yeah, I was sort of wondering, I mean, so there's some things that he can no longer do the way he was when he was prince, but are there things that King Charles can do that Prince Charles perhaps couldn't? I mean, I think there absolutely is. I mean, he has that kind of thing in the same way that I suppose presidents have as as, as well, of just like he has this huge global profile and this global reach, um, and he also has immense convening power. Um, so, you know, one of the things that did happen in, since he's came to the throne was there was this bit of a row with the government about whether or not he should attend the COP28 uh, summit out in Egypt. And there was a bit of briefing between the palace and number 10, sort of suggesting that he was kind of keen to go, because I think he was originally planning to go before he ascended to the throne. And then it was decided that maybe he shouldn't go because it is a bit too political. It's more of a sort of diplomatic thing. Um, and I think maybe it was a little bit too soon for him to kind of say, no, I'm definitely going. And he took his advice from number 10 and decided against it. But, you know, it was made known that that he would, I think he probably wanted to be there. Um, and he did host a reception at, at Buckingham Palace um, again ahead of COP28. Um, and, you know, the great and the good went. When you get invited, people go. So I think he will still find ways to, um, you know, use that convening power uh, to use some of his public pronouncements to, you know, continue to advance the causes that he cares about. Um, and what's really interesting from from you know our our listeners and and our readers' perspective is that he does it in quite a pro business way. I mean, the organisations he was was involved with are groups like the Corporate Leaders Group on Climate Change, the the the, the Cambridge Institute for Sustainability Leadership, um, and and various other initiatives that kind of saw the power of business as kind of positive, transformational, progressive force in this. So we certainly know about things, uh, all of climate and other things being political over on this side of the Atlantic. What do you think the impact of that is going to be? Someone who's had such a, uh, uh, I think, a steady hand on, on, on something that is so political uh, by at least some people. Uh, how is that going to, do you think, affect not only how he's perceived, but also what he can do? I think that's definitely a risk. I mean, that, that is absolutely true that he's, um, the, you know, the Queen was so adept at not saying anything particularly controversial, although often right. still getting her thoughts across. I mean, she, you know, she she was still known to care about these issues and she was able to make that clear. But obviously, Charles has had such a long record as heir when he was a bit more outspoken. And and yes, parts of the right wing press um, really do oppose aspects of of what he said and certainly don't treat him with the reverence that they may that they maybe did um his mother and i think the palace is very acutely aware that you know at times of change there is a risk you know they are um you know they, they do they do rule over us but through a degree of consent i mean they're you know republicanism isn't exactly 
a burning force in the UK, but it's not nothing either. There are people who um, continue to oppose the monarchy and we'll probably see some protests over the weekend uh, to that effect. Uh, and there's also lots and lots of people who only kind of support it if it's kind of seen as this very, very neutral thing that doesn't get too involved in politics. Um, and and I think, you know, I do think he, you know, he will be curtailed to quite a large degree in what, what he can say. Um, and the counter argument to that is I think they are, the palace is very adept at using that soft power that it has in ways without necessarily overstepping the line too much. Um, so it'll be it'll be a very delicate balancing act. It's going to be interesting to watch. It'll be interesting to see watch how the press responds, how the public responds, um, and, and how the palace manages it. Because I think the one thing everyone does know is he's not he's not going to want to just drift along and do nothing. He will want to use his platform in ways that he feels can can benefit um, benefit this this grand transition that we're all in. And then there's William, now the heir to the throne, uh, who he's got the Earthshot Prize and seems to have uh, followed in his father's footsteps in those ways. Uh, what's going to happen with him as, as it relates to these issues? I mean, I think I think he will definitely continue to step up. I think the Earthshot Prize is now pretty well established. I mean, it's what, what now in its second or, second or third year, um, does tend to make quite a big global fanfare, has an interesting and growing um, portfolio of, of projects that have been engaged with it. So I think we'll continue to see that. Um, I think, obviously, you know, there's been the dramas with Harry moving to the US. I mean, he obviously, again, similarly cares very much about these issues. Although, of course, there's also the cautionary tale there about the sort of press um, pushing back against the royals if they are deemed to press that um, sort of step out of line. Um, but I think, I think, you know, I think the family as a whole will continue to sort of lobby quite hard for more ambitious action on this front. Um and will continue to probably resist the charges of hypocrisy every time they get in a private jet. You know, it's not it's not a simple dynamic at all. Um, but I, you know, I I think they, you know, they'll continue to be one of the few sort of groups. Um, particularly, I think Prince William will have that leeway to go out and do this stuff. Uh, people who have a real global profile, who are willing to kind of lean into it and do their best to promote some of the projects and changes that are going on. Um, and I suppose part of the tragedy is here that, that, that you know, it, there aren't that many of them. There aren't that many people with that level of, I suppose, celebrity is the right word, um, who are frequently and and proactively talking about these issues. Yeah. So uh, before I let you go, James, um, what are you going to be up to this weekend? What am I going to be up to this weekend? Well, so we get we get a bank holiday for it, so that's nice. I'll probably just be taking the kids to the playground, to be honest. I think um, I'm I'm not a massive royalist. I do. I mean, I'll probably watch it. I think um, I think that that I think most people will probably stop and and have a little look at it. I mean, there was a wonderful story, an article in the Guardian saying that some of the sort of traditions of the anointing and 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 some of the some of the sort of the the the, the religiosity of it. You know, it dates back to kind of the Bronze Age almost. It goes right back to ancient history. The family can trace its roots back hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years um, as as the rulers of England. And regardless of whether you sort of approve of a monarchy or not, there is something quite powerful about that that historical uh, resonance. And and I do think that's one of the things that's really interesting about how they relate to climate is when when um, I think it was the Queen's Jubilee. I sort of tweeted a picture out of the Queen and. Um, and and princess princess charlotte and um princess kate and and just put their parts per million of the year they were born <laughs> up against underneath the photo and it went a bit viral actually i got quite a lot of tweets for it but it just you know they really do mark the passage of time um both in this country and across the commonwealth um 
and I, I always think that it, that resonates quite massively with the huge changes uh, we're undergoing now. So yeah, I'll be well. My family are coming over for a barbecue as well. That's what we're doing. We're making use of the bank holiday weekend, so there'll be a bit of a <laughs> the Murray clan will be getting together. Well, I'm sure it's going to be great, and you know, and whether you're a Royals uh, fan or not, uh, it's 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 exciting. Uh, I think around the world they'll be watching, at least noting the moment. Uh, well, look forward to hearing more. Uh, thank you, James Murray, editor in chief at Business Green. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Joe. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, just go to greenbiz.com slash 350 to find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned this week. While you're on the site, check out our free weekly newsletters. They're a great way to stay up to date all week long. Just go to greenbiz.com slash newsletters to sign up. Our address, as always, is 350 at greenbiz.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'll be out traveling next week, but Heather and Dylan Siegler will be here with another edition of Green Biz 350. Until then, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. We'll see you next time. 